Welcome to the Restoration Living Podcast with our host, military chaplain and spiritual care director, James Johnson. With so many voices in this world fighting for our attention, it's easy to believe that we aren't good enough, that our past will always haunt us, and that we will never measure up. But the voice of God is telling us that we can live a life of restoration in Him. Our Heavenly Father doesn't want us to let our past decisions determine our present peace. Instead, He wants us to find that life of restoration in Him. So grab your Bibles and join us as we dig into God's Word to discover timeless truths and proper application for our lives today. Thank you for joining us again as we continue through this series on the book of Revelation. And we've come a long ways, but we've got a good long ways to go. And I apologize for the break. And we had um, some school stuff and some army stuff come up that caused me to have to press pause on the process. But we're going to pick up where we left off. But because we've uh, been on a little bit of a break, let's recap where we left off and what we've covered so far. So we left off finishing chapter one which feels like for us to be as far into this as we are, we would be further, but we laid the groundwork to understand what apocalyptic literature is, how a Jewish person, uh, specifically one in the first century at the time that John wrote this, would have understood it, what they would have processed, and what references they would have understood that John was making. And we also covered the basic rules for interpreting apocalyptic literature because the proper name for what we call the book of Revelation is the Apocalypse of St. John. It is an apocalypse, which means it follows the patterns of apocalyptic literature. And one of the great mistakes we've talked about numerous times that readers and theologians and interpreters of this book have made throughout church history is trying to read it from the lens and worldview that they currently were in. So if I were to read this during the Middle Ages, you know, especially after um, some of the turmoil between the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church communities uh, during the, the Reformation, then you know, as I move through the Middle Ages into the Reformation, uh, it's tempting to try and make the Pope the Antichrist, to make the Catholic Church the one world government, because nothing in government happened without the approval of the the Church and the Pope. And so why it's possible to do that, you're having to twist the Scripture to fit your beliefs rather than twisting your beliefs to fit the Scripture. That's We want to always read the Bible in its proper context. So that's what we've been working on, following the rules of apocalyptic literature and the pattern of an apocalypse. As an apocalypse opens, it gives us the messenger and John, the beloved, Jesus' best friend, uh, John of, you know, of Patmos, whichever phrase you want to use, is the author. And he is given a fantastical uh, experience through a messenger. He's the messenger, but then God, through both angelic means and supernatural means, gives John a vision into heaven, into the throne room of God. And as we saw in chapter 1, 
John is told that he needs to write down the events that will soon happen. And they are supposed to be sent out to the church to prepare them. And that gives us a great starting point for understanding what the proper interpretational method is. And we are settling on the partial preterist view, meaning that the vast majority, 95 plus percent of the book of Revelation has already happened. And if we start from John's point where he says that this is going to happen soon and he it records numerous phrases we've already covered about how every eye will see Jesus' return, even those who pierced him. We looked at how in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus promised that that generation would not pass away before they saw the coming judgment of God and Jesus' return in judgment. And we talked about how that phrase, coming on the clouds, was a point back to God's judgment. It's an apocalypse term for God's judgment, but also the reference to the book of Daniel where the ancient one, the ancient of days, gives the one like a son of man all power and authority, and that one like a son of man came on the clouds with glory. And so all of this is pointing to Jesus and the judgment that he is going to make on the people of that generation. So that makes sense, right? And so as we left off finishing chapter one, we saw that John is given specific messages to specific church communities that he was the bishop over. And these church communities would have had their own pastors, but John was their bishop. He was their elder. He was the one who oversaw. He had planted those churches and he oversaw them in the region of Asia, and all the seven of these churches were a actual thing. They were real people in real places, but they also are symbolic of the church in general because we know that this was a circular that was meant to go out to all Christians because it was telling them the things that were going to soon take place. So as a good reader, we have to divide what is specific and what is general. And good readers, we do this all the time. That when I read, for example, if I read some of our founding documents of our nation that were written centuries ago, they were written to specific people at specific points in history. But as a good reader, I also can say these things still apply to me because I live in the government of the United States of America. So as we read this, we will be able to see what things were specific to each of these church communities and which of these things are things that we can apply in our life today, but we can also parse out the difference, you know, between the the fantastical and the literal. And we do this all the time. We use figurative language mixed with literal language. I can say, man, I, I have not eaten in 12 hours because work has been so busy. I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. Well, I mixed literal with figurative. Literally, I have not eaten in 12 hours. Figuratively, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. And we're going to see John do that as we continue on in this journey. So I encourage you, if if you uh, have not done so yet, Google the map of the seven churches of Asia from Revelation 2 and 3. Do an internet search for that and look at this on a map. We've talked before about the value of looking at maps and understanding the language of the time to help you get the context. And so as we begin to pick up in Revelation chapter 2, 
we're going to use that map to help us see some physical things, some topographical and geographical things that will help us understand why Jesus tells these churches what he tells them. And the last thing we need to hit before we jump back into the scripture together is to remember that we talked about how at the close of chapter one, there's a bunch of sevens, and there'll be a lot of sevens as we go through. There are Jesus walking among the seven lampstands. And we talked about how that was the menorah, and it was a the heavenly depiction of the earthly temple, that in the tabernacle in the temple, there was a lampstand with seven parts, a menorah, and that represented God's presence among his people. But Jesus tells John in this, that not only does it represent that, it also represents these seven churches, that Jesus is present with these seven churches. His presence, his spirit, the Holy Spirit of God is with them. And there's seven parts to God's spirit. In some translations call it the sevenfold spirit of God because God's spirit is perfect. It is there in totality and 100%. And the next thing that we're told is that Jesus has seven stars in his hands and that these are the seven angels of the churches. And we talked about how the word angel, malak in Hebrew, angelos in Greek, can refer to supernatural beings, right? The Elohim uh, is a term that is used to refer to heavenly beings, and some of the Elohim's job were to be angels, were to be messengers. But you do not have to be a spiritual being to be an angel. Any messenger can be considered an angel. And so who is the messenger? Who brings God's word to these churches? That would be their pastor. That's the pastor's job, the the shepherd of these church communities. It doesn't make sense for God to give John a message to give to a divine being. That just doesn't make sense. And so it's a more logical understanding of the use of the word angelos to say this is not where John is giving a message to a supernatural heavenly being from God. He's giving it to an earthly being. John is the messenger to the pastor and the church communities of each of these seven church communities. So in chapter 2, we're going to pick up and looking at each of these church communities. And like I said, look at a map to understand the specifics of each of these. All right, that was a good preamble to get us back on the same page, literally and figuratively, as we go. So let's look in our Bibles and let's jump into the scripture again in Revelation chapter 2. The first church community is the church community of Ephesus. And starting in verse 1, it says this. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. So this is a letter that that Jesus is telling John to write to this church community. Now, Ephesus was a Roman city located in what's modern-day Selkuk in the Izmir province of Turkey. It's a coastal city. It's a port town. This means that at the time it would have had a huge population that was a mix of many different cultures, races, practices, and faiths. One of the things that was very common in the Roman Empire, if you had citizenship, it was very common for people to relocate to anywhere in the empire that afforded them a better life. It would be something where they could leave and go to 
a, a you know, especially if you were a merchant or a tradesperson, you can relocate and travel and you could carry the things that you sold. And it was very common for people in these port towns to bring goods from ancient and you know, civilizations, other places in the world. It was kind of like your modern day Amazon, that when I order something from Amazon, I'm ordering from a specific merchant and store, but Amazon is the warehouse carrier, right? They handle the transportation part and allow me to have access to things I could not get on my own where I live. Well, this is what happened in places like Ephesus. As a result of this, there would be numerous connections and collisions between cultures and races and languages and beliefs and faith practices. I mean, think about going today to New York City or London or Seoul or Hong Kong. Each of these places are a mishmash of hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions of people that are coming to do work and to live and to trade and to interact with each other. And so can you imagine what it would have been like to visit Ephesus and go to the Agora? Even if you went there today, you can see it, uh, the ancient portions, and walk through where they would have bought, sold, and traded different things. And man, it would have been a, a beautiful mix of all of these different peoples all in one place. But one of the things that they also brought was their religions. Specifically, as emperors like Nero and Domitian came into power, the cult of the emperor really rose to, 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 to its prominence. And beginning with the very first Caesar, Julius Caesar, after Caesar's death, he went through what was called apotheosis. He became a god. And this was something that was very common in the Greco-Roman belief that when great people did great things, the gods honored them by making them gods in the afterlife. And so because Julius Caesar was in, in Octavian, all these people were, were turned into gods. They became gods. They, they went through an apotheosis. People would worship them and venerate them the same way they would Zeus or Neptune, right, or Aphrodite. And there would be temples to the emperors, and their statues would be in there, and you would offer sacrifices to them to go into the marketplace. Nero was one of the first people, however, to, be, to claim to be a god while he was still alive. The common thing was to wait until after the emperor had died and then deify them. But Nero erected a statue of himself as God while he was alive. And so as people went into the cities of Ephesus uh, and, and other major cities to go into the marketplace, you would have to worship the emperor as time went on and, and the Christians began to struggle with this. And we're gonna talk more about this later, but that's the context of the, the Greek, god, uh, Greek god worship in towns like Ephesus. But Ephesus had a specific god of theirs that was very well known, especially if you study scripture, you see that the silversmiths who worked in Ephesus were very well known and famous for making little statues, little idols to worship the goddess Artemis. Now, one of the things that we often confuse in our, you know, modern perspective, we don't see idol worship very often. And we have this confused belief that people believed that by worshiping the idol, they were worshiping God, that God or goddess. And what we have to recognize is these statues were made to honor them. They would become totems. They would become um, 
things that would become infused with that god or goddess's presence, not the actual god itself. So the idol was set apart for that specific purpose, and so it allowed somebody to have a tribute or a shrine to that particular god or goddess in their home. And most families would choose, depending on where they lived in their culture, um, they would choose one of the gods to be their patron god of their family. And almost always this went with whatever job or career that family had. If you were a fisher, you know, family, fishing family, you know, and you had were generationally fishermen, um, that you would more than likely have Neptune or Poseidon as your patron god in your home and you would offer sacrifices to them not because that one god was 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 you know trapped in that tiny statue but it was a almost kind of like a, a telephone right it was a way of communicating to that god that you wanted their help and you were petitioning them for something now for artemis Artemis was a Artemis was a goddess of fertility. So a lot of the acts of worship for Artemis were sexual in nature. Whether this was done in the home or this was done locally in festivals and and, and pagan shrines, it was very common for um, for example for a man after the end of his workday and sometimes women too to go into the temple of Artemis and quote unquote worship her with the temple prostitutes they would offer a a a a gift of money to have sex with the temple prostitute as an act of worship and of course this was very you know uh, very popular you can understand why as people would come through ephesus they would look forward to going to the temple of artemis and so these silversmiths man they made a lot of money selling the idols of artemis and there was a lot of of pagan evil practices that were going on in ephesus and we see a really popular example of this in acts chapter 9 where paul after years of of teaching the gospel and, and planting churches makes his way to ephesus and as he begins to teach the christian faith and people begin converting they begin leaving behind the worship of Artemis to worship God, to worship Jesus, and this frustrates the guild of the silversmiths who make their living off of selling these idols, and of course it also frustrated the people in the town who wanted to keep that temple of Artemis going because it gave them an, a, a place to you know encounter and a socially acceptable way to engage in these sexual practices. And so as Ephesus thrived through all of this, the church was also growing. And there was a lot of uh, there's a lot of competition, there's a lot of, of hostility between the Christians who refused to participate in these practices and those who did. And of course there was a third group of people. There were young converts or people who were Christians who were forced to live and work around all of this. And it was a huge temptation. It caused a lot of falling away and, and people who would convert to Christianity and then realize, wow, I don't I don't want to put up with either the hostility that's coming towards me. Could you imagine being a silversmith who converted to Christianity and now no longer makes these idols maybe they do other things well they would have been kicked out of 
the, the guild, they would not have been allowed to sell their work in the marketplace legally. And so they either would have had to resort to illegal practices or trying to sell their silverwork in other places. And they would have lost business, they would have lost money, and they would have lost out on the ability to worship Artemis through these sexual festivals and practices. So there was a, a lot of struggle between devout Christians, devout pagans, and those that were kind of caught in the middle. And so this is where the first letter Jesus gives John, this is where this picks up. That's the context of what's going on in the mishmash of different beliefs and the desire to teach the true Christian faith in the middle of all of this. So let's go to verse two. Jesus tells John to write this to the pastor, the angel, right? And the church, and it says this in verse two, I know all the things you do, I have seen your hard work and patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You have discovered they are liars. You have suffered patiently from me without quitting. Okay, we're going to see a pattern in each of these letters. The first pattern starts off with an, a, a reminder of who is writing to them and with a reminder that Jesus is the one giving them this message. They need to take it seriously. And a compliment. Jesus is complimenting them. I see the good things you're doing. You have, you're examining the claims of those who, who bring new religious teaching, and you see that they're liars. One of the things that was happening all over the Roman Empire is a mishmash of pagan and Christian beliefs. People wanted to have their cake and eat it too. They wanted to be accepted by the world and to participate in these pagan practices and still be able to say, I'm a Christian and show up to church on you know days of worship and take part in the Christian community. They wanted to be able to have it both ways. And Jesus is telling them, you've patiently suffered for me without quitting. And we talked about some of the things they would have suffered, poverty, rejection. There would have definitely been family discord as you know people became followers of Jesus and their families would have been pagan still. And so this would have caused a lot of struggle and hardship. And so Jesus is complimenting him and saying, hey, you have not given up the faith. You've endured these struggles and you've stayed true. And you have done a good job of when new people come and bring new teachings. Because it's not like they could go on YouTube or the internet and, and read their Bibles. Most of them didn't have Bibles. Uh, they might be one, one, you know, you know, set of, you know, of course, they would have had what we call the Old Testament, but they would have only been copies of the early teachings of the apostles. And so if I wandered into town and said, hey, I'm an apostle, let me tell you, well, how would they know? How would they verify it? There wasn't an apostle membership card. They would have to, you know, test what they said against what people like Paul told them in the beginning. And so let's pick up in verse four and after the, the, reminder that Jesus is the one telling them this message through John, giving them a compliment, then Jesus gives a correction. So let's look at verse 4, the correction he wants to bring to them. Verse 4, but I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Some translations say you have lost your first love. Verse 5 says, look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. So now, Jesus wants them to understand that, yes, you're doing good things, but you've you've fallen away. You've gotten caught up in, in other things besides being true to me. 
And it's no small wonder looking at the context they live in, how easy it is to fall away. How easy it would be to get up and, and want to go back to the life that brought you, you know, financial security or prosperity, that brought you social acceptance. One of the things that the church is struggling with even today is this problem. As people leave the church in droves, the church is in steep decline in America right now. As of this recording, it's projected that 27% of church attendees are leaving every year because of the, the fact that the church is standing up for its beliefs. I mean, if you, a simple internet search will show you how denominations are fracturing over these things and church communities are dying off. I've driven by in just the last two weeks five church buildings that are for sale. Now, maybe they're for sale because they've experienced phenomenal growth and are building new buildings. But it doesn't look that way. It looks like these church communities are dying and their buildings are being sold because they can't afford to keep them anymore. The trends are showing this and some pastors get mad at saying, oh, look at the statistics of the church dying. Or you know, they say, James, you're, you're being too negative. You know, the, the Jesus wins in the end. And yes, that's true. But that doesn't deny the reality of what we're experiencing right now. Jesus warns them if they fail to repent and return to him as their first love and stop being corrupted by the outside world and the outside teachers, that he's going to remove their place from the lampstand, you know, that from the church of music, that Jesus is going to remove his presence from their community. And what that lets us know is that church communities can exist without the presence of God in them. I've been in numerous places where people did a lot of church, but didn't have a lot of Jesus. And so as we move forward, Jesus is giving them the serious ultimatum. Come back to me and, and come do the things you used to do, or I'm going to have to take my presence away from you. And look at what he says in verse 6. He gives them another compliment. This is in your favor. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans just as I do. Now, this is just one sentence, but it, it gives us more context as to how they left their first love and still remain true. That they were caught up in understanding the teaching of the day. And as a guy that's a theologian, I do the same thing. I try to stay on the forefront of what's being taught in the world of theology, both in Christianity and other faiths around the world. But as a result, you can get so caught up in theology that you miss doing the work of God. So who were the Nicolaitans? The Nicolaitans were an early group of philosophers that were part of a, a group called the Gnostics. And the Gnostics, and Gnosis means knowing in Greek, they believed that they had a, a new form of hidden knowledge and, and that the only way to find this knowledge was to join their movement. And that's a, an, an old trick of, of many cult groups is to say, we have hidden knowledge that the rest of the world does not have. And the only way to get this, these deeper teachings are to join our group. And what they did was they believed that the soul was pure and the body was evil. That the only way to have purity is to divorce the body from the spirit. But what this gave them to do is it allowed them to say, you know what, you can keep your spirit pure and let your body live however it wants to because there's no salvation for the body. There's only salvation for the spirit. This gave them permission to say, I can do what I want to with my body. I can commit adultery. I can, you know, I can go to these, you know, drunken orgies. I can overindulge, right? I can, I can experience um, gluttony, right? That's the, the problem with the sin of gluttony is overindulgence and overdoing things. And 
the, the Nicolaitans were one of the first groups to t- teach this. And the Ephesians hated this. The Ephesian Christians did. They're saying, hey, you're corrupting us. So we reject you. And Jesus concludes this section by saying, anyone with ears to listen must, or anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life and the paradise of God. Now, to be victorious, right, this is a connection to both military victory and athletic competition. That this would have been spiritual warfare for these people every day to be able to you know, have to go into this world of so many different cultures and stay true to the Christian faith, kingdom culture. And so Jesus is telling them, hey, if you're victorious, if you stay true to the faith, I'm going to give you fruit from the tree of life and the paradise of God. This would have been a throwback to a reference to Genesis, to the Garden of Eden, where the tree of life was. After Adam and Eve disobeyed God and and fell outside of his will, they were cast out of the garden and could no longer have access to the tree of life. Well, the tree of life comes from God. It's eternal life. And he's saying, anyone who's victorious, I'm going to give you eternal life. This is why the lampstand that symbolized the presence of God was made to look like a tree. It had blossoms and fruit woven you know, into it with the metal, right? As, as the metal was cast, it had these things on the menorah attached to it, beautifully done, artistically done, to show the lampstand, the menorah, and the temple represented God's presence as well as the tree of life. And Jesus is telling these people, hey, pay attention. If you're not victorious... If you don't stay true to the faith, you're going to lose your eternal life. Not that they lost their salvation, but that they never had it to begin with. That you have to remain true. And so one of the things that we see was that uh, this was, you know, saying, hey, we, we need to understand that this was a reference to eternal life. But there's also one last reference we need to make before we close our time together. And that is in the in the area outside of the temple to Artemis. There was a massive tree called the Tree of Life. And women would come there and touch the tree, praying that it would make them pregnant. They would go to Artemis and offer sacrifices, hoping that they would receive life in their womb. And one of the great things that would happen as it grew fruit as part of festivals, they would try and get that fruit to bring them new life in their bodies through pregnancy. So a, a, an Ephesian would have made this connection to say, no, we're not going to go to the tree of life in the worship of, of Artemis and Ephesus. We're going to go to Jesus, who's going to give us the real fruit of the tree of life. So as we close our time together, I really hope that that helps you open some doors. As we do our next session, we're going to um, work on applying this in our lives today. But I hope that you see the struggles and the context that Jesus was giving the message to John of to help him see that he was still active and to give them hope in the middle of their struggles. So until next time, be blessed. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We pray that God uses it to inform your mind, improve your life, and ignite your heart with a renewed passion to impact others for the kingdom of God. 
And be sure to subscribe to this podcast so that you can continue along with us on this journey of restoration living.